Dr. Yuen, an associate professor at African American Studies Department at Virginia Commonwealth University. He recently achieved tenure this year. Congratulations, Dr. Yuen. Thank you. Um, it's been a long time since we've seen each other. It's good to see you. Yeah, it's really nice to see you. Man. You know, we, we have a, a gathering environmental crisis that threatens life on Earth. And, you know, we, we have very clear, very clear warnings coming from all corners of the scientific community. We have clear mandates for things like the, the Paris Accord, but also consensus that isn't even enough to, to really slow down the, the pace of environmental destruction. Um, and yet we have, you know, this incredible stubbornness in our in our political system to actually respond to that because um, because of sort of the way in which money dictates and 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 um, you know contributions and you know just to, but but also entrenched economic power really puts a break on the ability of our of our of our, of our institutions to actually respond to crises even when it seems clear that the crisis is, is coming. I mean, it's sort of, in fact, reminds me that in general, it takes a long time for, for our economy, which is really rooted in, I mean, you know, capitalist economy is rooted in the, in the, in the principle of sort of creative destruction and innovation, but it is also in, attached to political systems that, that, that halt that, that, that sort of economic change in really interesting ways. And so you also, you sort of have the worst of both worlds, where you have a system that is devoted not to the, the care of individuals, but to innovation and, and capital accumulation and, and sort of, you know, and, and destruction in, 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 in the name of progress. On the other hand, you have political systems that have grown up that actually protect the interests of older economic elites. But you saw the same thing with, with way back to slavery, you know, the transformation of, of, of sort of, you know, global economies from economies that were really rooted in Atlantic slavery towards that were rooted in imperialism, the exploitation of, of raw materials from non-slave but wage colonized or, 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 or workers that existed in imperial context. And it took years to sort of uproot the, the slave interest in that global economy. I mean, I, the, the same thing is happening with the energy economy right now um, in a way that's just totally destructive, really, really scary. But I think, yeah, I mean, when, this is a real tangent. When you start thinking about Joe Manchin, you're not, you're, I, I get, I, I think of it all these things. Because again, like Joe Manchin represents something that's beyond Joe Manchin. I mean, Joe Manchin is a politician that is that is trying to remain in political office and representing interests that allow him to remain in office. It's interesting that you mentioned that because I was reading you know, Conquest on Zuma, the fall of old Mexico um, by Ian Thomas. It's just, it seems everybody else, at least as far as he says, who wrote the story of Montezuma. I didn't know that story. And I didn't know about the story. Everybody else didn't know about the incredible thing in terms of the world's life over the basically a pontoon bridge in there. It's insane. Awesome story. It was Ottoman Turks, you know, in 1453, 
immediately, you know, they take over Constantinople, and now you've got to turn to the other side of the world, right? You've got to find money somewhere. And there's Africa, and then there's these, you know, unknown places on the side of the Atlantic. But these companies, like the South Sea companies, right, that was specifically set up to bring slaves over um, for the English crown, because, just a quick bit of a backstory, the English crown uh, within the 1500s, 1600s was basically being limited by Parliament. There were civil wars going on within England. A lot had to do with the fact that the crown was just going after war, after war, after war. And there really was no way to pay for it. And it's not like a modern monetary system where you just, like the United States, where you just type something in. You have to go and get gold. You have to go and get to that. You're creating one. And you say creative destruction, you have to go out and explore. You go out and conquer a lot of tape in order to bring it back, right? But it is interesting that you draw a parallel between people, who, you didn't say it, I will, that you draw that parallel between fossil fuel companies uh, and those institutions, how similar they are. Because uh, I mean, in essence, it, I mean, outside of the fact that they're king, you know, serving a king or serving shareholders, there really is no difference. Um, you know, minor regulatory differences, yeah. But yeah, that, that's an interesting parallel you brought up. Yeah, that's cool. I really, I mean, I really like the way that you know, when I think about like the fossil fuel industry, I really think about you know what 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 Marx said about about capitalism, which is it's you know it's presented as freedom, but actually it's a form of, of it, it creates compulsion. It actually fixes people to a set of relations, even people that are thriving within a capitalist system, right? Because the, 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 the engine of capitalism does not stop. You cannot be, be satisfied with a certain level of production. You have to always be finding new ways to innovate, new ways to, to seek profit, new ways to find markets, new ways to produce more for less. And and you know, when you when you look at the behavior of the fossil fuel companies, and these, these are companies that are run by people that, that presumably want to live on a, a habitable planet. But you know, like they like Exxon knew, has known for decades that, that to continue to to mine for new new fossil fuels is is, is a like is a um, is, is a risk to the entire planet. And yet, and yet the, the behavior the behavior doesn't change. And in fact, and in fact, rather than sort of you know seeking to actually tend to that crisis, the compulsion of capitalism is while well, we have shareholders, we have profit margins, we need to expand into new markets, find new materials. That is that is the logic that that, that you know energy companies are continuing to pursue. Yeah. Um, and, and you sort of see that, you know, that compulsion, that that that, that turning that, that, that Marx was was warning about. Right? It is a it is a system that is it is destructive because it is ultimately predicated on destruction and endless expansion and there's only so much that as we have seen there's only so much that you can expand into before you start actually you know before the world can't you know the earth can't sustain that expansion any anymore and yeah now here we are trying to pull that back but, but the very nature of our economic model prevents that from happening and what's interesting is that, you know, Constitution, one thing where it never comes up in Constitution as well, right? You never get a conversation among the quote-unquote founding fathers or the architects, right, of the Constitution, or the Articles of the Federation, that matter, about wealth, about wealth distribution. There's 
no, I mean, we need to have a, an income tax, right? Until we actually have a constitutional amendment so the federal government had a right to collect income taxes. Mm -hmm. uh, the rights of the federal government, even though they're more than, you know, Articles of the Federation, AOC, the Constitution is so ingrained, right? It, the, the Congress is supposed to move so slowly. You have to send things from the Senate to the House, back to the Senate, and then you do the House, and then it has to go to the President. If the President doesn't sign it, then it has to go back to the House. They can overrule it or the bill dies, right? They amend it or they send it back. It's the slog of a process, and it's meant to slow things down. But people like Madison didn't trust um, the, public, the public, right? Uh, in essence, it's certainly not. Yeah, I mean, the Constitution, I think, states in the whole lines of the Constitution is set up to protect the minority of the majority. At the time, most wealth in the United States didn't have to do with land. Uh, because land was basically endless. And resources, a lot of them, you know, you could make some money and work a real big thing. The problem is labor, getting labor over here. And the one place you can find labor and also make money through permanent destruction at that time was on human bodies, uh, the Atlantic City trade. So that's a big reason of why wealth was never discussed in this Well, the, the property is protected. Right, so that's that's the that's the contradiction. If you, know, if you want to see it as a contradiction, is that the Constitution provides protections for individual liberties. They're 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 negative. They're negative freedoms, right? Like the, the, the Bill of Rights protects you from an interventionist government. It doesn't it, it, it doesn't say anything about you know what, what was later talked about as, as positive freedoms. You know, the right to to having a, a um, you know, fulfilling job or one in which you are compensated, the right to, to shelter, the right to health care, like all these things, we, you know, the, the, all the stuff the FDR talked about in the second bill of rights. Um, but, you know, yeah, I mean, the, 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 the fear, you know, those, those guys were not Democrats. They were small D. They weren't small D Democrats. They, were, they, they didn't believe in democracy. They, they feared the... They feared the tyranny of kings and the anarchy of the mob, and they were trying to find a middle ground in between those, in between those two things. They, and, and they fashioned themselves as philosophers and as a, an enlightened aristocracy that was best positioned to, 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 to marshal a, a, a republic, not a democracy, but a, but a republic. One of the things that, that you think about a lot of studies, of course, is, is the way in which we were, you know, we have sort of been fashioned in the West to think about the Enlightenment as an extension of an, an extension of rights, but but part of the Enlightenment was also um, thinking about property rights and protecting property, and also, by the way, um, defining civilization on the basis of private property. Right, like this is this is what Locke was really obsessed with, right? And, and in fact, you know, when 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 European nations um, went into non-European spaces, um, you know, one of the one of the justifications, you know, there, there were different ways in which Europeans colonized. Right? One was signing treaties with, with, with rulers. One was just, you know, military intervention, just, you know, uh, conquering and then seizing. But but often Europeans went into went into places and they said, look, um, you know, civilization civilization is predicated on the um, on the existence of private property, which then is, is is produced for the benefit of the community, and they looked at the, at, at you know like in, in, in parts of in, in, in 
Africa, in, in the Americas, they're like, look, these communities do not have private property, ergo they are savage societies, they are, they are, they are misusing the land and, and therefore it is ours, right? So a lot of what was, was being fashioned was a theory of, of rights that was defined as natural rights, or defined as universal rights, but we're, we're, we're being grafted into a universalism which was imagining a racial hierarchy and a hierarchy of people in which some people would be deemed stewards of the land, some people would not, and in which rights were really being grafted onto a, a theory of private property that ultimately, when it comes down to it, protects property over rights, you know, individual rights. You know, there's the individual right to property. Um, I, I think the you know the, the history of the United States shows that when when the, the, the rights of when, when the rights of property are are, are placed into under threat, um, the state mobilizes to defend, to, to defend property rather than, than other rights that the individuals are. Right. Literally, the, the only civil war we fought was over property, right? And, and it wasn't land that we talked about. You were just talking about that earlier, which is the difference between negative and positive rights, right? So you have the freedom from uh, oppression from the state, right? When it comes to living, you have freedom from oppression when it comes to censorship when it comes to speaking or when it comes to printing. But at the same time, you were talking about how with FDR, you have freedom to things. You have the right to things, which is the right to health care, the right to a decent job, the right to a good education. Chomsky often talks about how when it comes to property, you sort of have a pen, right? If you have the right to a pen, that means someone else doesn't own it, right? It's an exclusive right. Just because you can speak doesn't mean someone else can't speak. Mm. So there are two, so sort of the ninth of both ways in one and not right. the other. Right. So last year, mm. late May, mid May, video came out online. Mm. It was a man named George Floyd who had apparently known Derek Chauvin for 17 years while they worked at a bar together across the street from a liquor shop called El Nuevo Rodeo. You know, I think it's really interesting that right across the street from where Allie is standing um, is a restaurant called El Nuevo Rodeo. Um, George Floyd works at that restaurant. So did Officer Chauvin. They were both bouncers at that restaurant for 17 years. So Officer Chauvin, he knew George. In that video, you can see Officer Chauvin, who's now a convicted murderer, sat on the chest of a man for about nine minutes until four or five of which he wasn't moving to ensure that he was dead. And, you know, I'm not sure what exactly it was maybe about that specific video. Because there are other videos out there that I choose not to, to publish, I choose not to publicize, I choose not to put out because they're just... They're just they're not good for me. But something about Flash 
kind of austerity that we face from Barack Obama, the kind of austerity we face from that sort of decade, almost and a half, of just deprivation by the U.S. federal government when it came to meeting people's needs, that the economy wasn't meeting because it wasn't structured to meet those needs. We get to a situation last year where the coronavirus kicks off. Millions of people aren't meeting tentatively to meet with our work. And just like that, it was kerosene. And it just went up. You know, Minneapolis just went up. St. Paul just went up. And I have countless videos of last year saying on Twitter of the rage that was just that they just it, it just sort of snapped out. And also just the, the grief. You can see literally the grief process. We're also gonna be talking to a psychology professor here soon. Uh, hopefully James T. McCullough. I don't know if you remember him. Um, that guy is I gotta get him on camera so he goes. Um, he was, I was in his last class. Oh, cool. Yeah, I gotta get him to sign the book because I bought the book. <laughs> oh. um, so yeah, um, but it's, you can sort of see the grieving process take place in real time. Yeah. And there was a lot of sensationalist coverage, there was a lot of talk about rioting, looting, all the rest of that nonsense. Not to mention yeah, US corporations, the kind of looting that they had just done of US Treasury and Philly. So it's mm-hmm. about looting. Mm-hmm. When I saw that taking place from home in Southeast Virginia, I immediately wanted to know what you were thinking of that Because I remember our class was named Ferguson USA. It was based on that moment in the Black Lives Matter. Barack Obama's reaction to the Ferguson Yeah. What were your thoughts at the time from this city? Um, yeah, I mean, it, it was, you know, it's one of those things where people were really, it, you sort of felt two ways at the same time. Um, you know, people were really hurting and, and, you know, in, in Richmond, Peaceful protesters were being tear gassed by police. Um, you know, I, I, you know, was out there marching, but was not sort of out there after curfew. Like several of my students who were, were being, were, were facing violence, you know, nightly the threat of violence and actual violence. I had, I had students that were these real, you know. It, it, it really faced real, real harassment, um, and and as you say, people people really were suffering and are suffering as a result of the of, of the pandemic. Um, there's also, I, I think, as in any any sort of moments where there is a break and the order of a society cracks a little bit. Um, you know, there, there it's a real it's it, there's a moment of euphoria. Um, because you know what's happening. You ask, you know, like, why, why the the murder of George Floyd? Why does that bring people into the into the streets when we have numerous horrific videos of, of police brutality, of, of police killing unarmed black men, black women, um, by the way, white people as well. Um, you know, why this? Um, 
and and I think you know you, you sort of frame this in an interesting way. And I, I sort of I actually sort of want to ask you if you see this as an economic or a or a, a race issue, if, if you can even separate those two things. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think that, that the reason why I wanted to teach that course on Ferguson is because it really felt like we were in a new um, cycle of, of reconstruction. You know, uh, William Barber talks about this period right now being the th a third reconstruction, right? We had, you know, the first reconstruction after the Civil War um, in which there was a real push, however limited, to create a multiracial democracy in the United States. The civil rights movement, that, that era, with the civil rights legislation in particular, the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act, is often called a second second reconstruction. Um, and and you know what people have argued is, and what we're seeing right now is is a third reconstruction moment in which the contradictions of U.S. society have have made some type of reckoning inevitable. Um, and and the types of organizing and activism that never goes away, but there are always people that are are organizing and mobilizing against structural inequalities in the United States are able to actually um, break through the, the, the status quo and actually start to, to 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 bring sort of more people into their movements in a way that actually threatens entrenched power interests. Uh, and and you know I, I think that what we saw last summer was a manifestation of that, and it's not going to be the last one. Um, by the way, it's not unconnected from what we saw with the, the rise of the Trump presidency. It's not unconnected from what we're, we're seeing right now, with, which is a, a, a mobilization of, 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 of people that are committed to maintaining white supremacy, maintaining the status quo. Um, it's being, you know, it's, it's being sort of filtered for a language of the restoration of white supremacy in a way that politics in the United States typically is your point does have a significant economic component and, and other components as well. Um, but yeah, I, I you know I, it was remarkable for me to see like I, I saw Angela Davis interviewed last last year and to see her. She was like I I never thought I would live to see a moment like this. And she was what we are seeing now are new demands, demands to demilitarize the police, demands to defund the police, demands to dismantle the police and envision uh, different modes of public safety. We're, we're asked now to consider uh, how we might imagine justice in the future. This is a very exciting moment. I don't know if we have ever experienced uh, of this kind of global challenge to racism and to the consequences of slavery and colonialism. And, and you know what she was talking about was, you know, she's been, she she sort of gained fame and, and really sort of did a lot of her most important organizing work, although she's done important organizing work her entire life. You know, she became famous during the last period in which the the, sort of the foundations of, of the, the United States were really shook. You know, the Black Power, the Black Power era, the, the, the Vietnam era, um, was you know, and, and and was criminalized. You know, during during the, the counter revolution against this against that revolution, which was to to, to criminalize protest and, and to, to mobilize the, the, the all of the, the combined 
efforts of, of U.S. law enforcement and, and the U.S. government to, um, to, to halt the, the progress of, of civil rights and black power and, and anti-war movements. Um, and then sort of went through decades in which those entrenched powers who had reasserted control um, really made made the types of the types of mobilizations that we saw in the late sixties and nineteen seventies very hard to accomplish. And so here was Davis seeing this happen again, someone that lived through this, that, that was incarcerated as a result of her act activism during this first period. Um, on false charges. On yes. Um, and and um, you know, here she was, you know, witnessing this happening again. And that's what she was giving voice to. That this was happening again. And and the sort of the, the, the euphoria that, that I sort of detected in her voice was, was the amazement that that another opportunity was now presenting itself. And I thought about that a lot too. And you know, we're now in 2021 and it feels like a very different moment. But the thing that I felt back then, I still feel now, which is that there is a fundamental contradiction between the, um, the, the, the sort of the, the, the socio-economic political reality of the United States and, um, and the, 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 the way in which elites try to frame that reality. You know, and one of one of the things about democracies is that they require a veneer of, of accountability. They require accountability, or, or they, they require justification. They require they require buy-in. They require people to actually believe that these that these states are are acting in in, in the interests of their citizenry. And when that veil falls down, or when at least cannot maintain that veil. That is when we see these types of, of mobilizations, and we are still in that moment. Um, the contradictions that, that that the pandemic and that the Black Lives Matter movement and that the murder of George Floyd have revealed um, have not been resolved. The issues that, that were being raised, by the way, which were the same issues, poverty, police brutality, structural racism, that were being raised during imperialism, that were being raised during the 1960s and 70s, these are the issues that are once again on the table um, you know, and and because of that, we're you know we are still in this moment of uncertainty. We are still in this reconstruction period, and that's a, I think that's a reason to be both hopeful and also uh, mobilized and also um, fearful, because reconstruction does not mean that things reconstruct in ways that are to the benefit of, of people. Yeah, I'm trying to take that in reverse order, right? So, especially when it comes to Reconstruction, the entire reason why Reconstruction really failed was because Abraham Lincoln had died, and Andrew Johnson, who was this rapidly racist man that Abraham Lincoln sort of made a political deal with in order to be able to be president in 1864, and still the South just, you know, wouldn't have it, just, just, just would not have it. Um, so, and so here we are, right? Well, except, except, except I, I mean, I think, I think the course of U.S. history would have been different if, if Lincoln hadn't been assassinated, perhaps. But I think we give far too much credit to Lincoln as this. I mean, you know, go in on Lincoln. Lincoln. I mean, there's there's a famous famous essay that, that I'm actually my, my my class is reading this week called "Was Abe Lincoln a White Supremacist?" 
Um, so the answer is yes. But, but you know, Lincoln, the, the, Lincoln, um, the, the reason why emancipation happened during the Civil War was because of the mobilization of, mass mobilization of slave people. Right? Social change does not come about because of leaders. Now, what, what Lincoln was able to do, because Lincoln was a very good politician, was Lincoln was a, was, was, Lincoln was a good steward of the country. Um, I, I think you could argue. What you can't argue is that Lincoln was, 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 was spearheading sort of the radical initiatives that came on the back of, of emancipation. Um, and I, I, think, I think what I would argue is the reason why Reconstruction failed is because um, the, the, you know, the, the U.S. Was, was, willing to, was, was willing to make the concession of emancipation, um, was, was remarkably willing to push forward um, voting rights for black men and, um, and, and citizenship. And 14th Amendment. 14th, right, legal equality, the 14th and 15th Amendment. Um, but was not willing to to, um, to 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 think about actual redistribution, reparations, land rights, forty acres and a mule. Um, Thaddeus Stevens was. Thaddeus Stevens was, but but Thaddeus Stevens was virtually alone. Um, and and Thaddeus Stevens warned, like, look, if, if if we don't do this, there is no true reconstruction because you can't simply emancipate people with, with nothing to their name. And then, and then expect them to, to actually have political freedom, because without economic freedom, or the ability to actually have economic protection that will, that will, that will you know, um, there, there, there is, there is no, no guarantee of, of, of political protection. And of course, this is exactly what happened in, in the United States. So anyway, yeah, I mean, I just didn't want to give too much credit to Abraham Lincoln. No, I mean, no, look, you, you, you want to stop my Abraham Lincoln? I'm, I'm right there with you, man. There's a whole conversation, right? I think there are a whole book, there's a book about this, about the 14th Amendment and about its sort of civilizing of America and about how black people becoming citizens civilizes the country. The 14th Amendment says a lot of things. There are a lot of different sections of it, insurrection, aiding and rebellion, um, when it comes to, you know, conspiracy against the United States, not holding the debt of the United States hostage, um, you know, things along those lines, but also equal protection of the law, birthright citizenship, so when you're born on U.S. soil, you're a citizen, period, point blank, we're not having debates about it. Also, 15th Amendment is very clear about giving formerly emancipated slaves every person the right to vote. Well, but again, it's a negative, it's like a negative freedom rather than a positive one, right? It is, you, your right to vote cannot be abridged by your, by your race or color or previous condition or certainty of national origin. Um, so it does not, it does not protect the right to vote, very, quite explicitly. It, it's, it denies the restriction of the vote on a very narrow ground, which of course was, was easily jumped over by, by um, voter suppression efforts you know, less than half a century later. Because there was not a positive freedom which would protect the right of every US citizen to vote. We do not have the right to vote. Still, to this day. Yes. So this year, January 6th, we had a president that continuously pushed against the idea that the election could actually be legitimate. To the point where he made an entire political movement for months with conspiracy theories and ideas about the fact that, that the vote wasn't real, that it was a sham, and that the day that the Congress was supposed to meet in order to count the electoral votes was the day that they were going to go to the Capitol 
in order to prevent that constitutional process from happening. Yeah. Now that constitutional process is deeply racist and marginalizes the voice of the, the populace in terms of popular vote. However, the sort of you know, the sort, the sort of porn call to white supremacy that Donald Trump is and was. And that day, when they stormed the U.S. Capitol, I immediately thought, not only of you, but as I said earlier, Ida B. Wells Barnett, which she says, the mob took over the town. None of them were masked. The authorities showed where their sympathies were. And there are several videos to show police officers helping those from, Jan from the January 6th, people who were essentially invading yeah. the congressional building. And, you know, if you hold the Constitution and the state, you know, it's our process, and, you know, the people, they're, that kind of attack yeah. on democracy, citadel democracy and whatnot, this sort of attack on electoralism because it is a threat to, you know, it's a threat to whiteness, it's a threat to white supremacy. It's something I was really, I wanted to know what your thoughts were yeah. on that day. Because I was terrified yeah. that they were actually going to get <laughs> Yeah, well, and as we've, we've learned, um, they weren't that far off from things being far worse. 60 seconds. But <laughs> was well, right, yeah, I mean, whether it was elected officials being murdered, um, whether it was, you know, the, the, the election being overturned. I mean, things have come out more, more, more recently about the pressure that the vice president was facing to not um, certify the, the election results. Um, yeah, I mean, it was, uh, it was pretty, pretty scary and pretty surreal to, pretty surreal to witness at the time. Um, but I think, I think, but I think, yeah, definitely. Certainly, but I mean, I, I think, I think that, I think that what, what it's really important to normalize rather than uh, sensationalize what happened, right? I mean, I think, I think that a lot of the narrative around the Trump presidency and around January sixth is focused on this as a sensational break with tradition, um, rather than an effort to re-sanctify long-standing traditions in the United States. Right? When we talk about reconstruction, and you mentioned that, you know, white supremacy, what we're, what we're talking about is the United States was built as a white man's nation. And this is explicitly said in the 1790 Nationalization Act. Right? This is a nation for white men. This is a nation for white, white people. And, you know, every time that principle has been tested, you know, when... When there was a push for democratic reform in the 19th, in the early 19th century, right, the, the Jacksonian era, when 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 there was an expansion of suffrage for for white people, there was a retraction of voting rights for free black men. Um, after the Civil War, right, as we, we talked about, there was there was the the 15th Amendment and and voting rights granted to, to black men, and then. A violent counter-revolution that ended in legal disenfranchisement of nearly every black, per black person in in the United States that lasted for for decades more. Um, in the in in the aftermath of of the civil rights movement, there were there was significant voting legislation in in the Voting Rights Act, which went farther and protected more. Black voters, and by the way, at, at, you know, at this point, women were enfranchised to vote as well. Um, but we have what we have seen 
a chipping away of that effort to allow to 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 affirm the right of black citizens to vote with you know things like mass incarceration indirectly but also particularly in the last 20 years substantial efforts to um, restrict the vote through methods that try to get around the Voting Rights Act in the same way that former measures sought to get around the 15th Amendment. And more recently, in the last 10 years, the Voting Rights Act has, has virtually been nullified by the 2013 ruling and, and more recently by, by um, I wish I could remember what the, you know, Shelby in 2013. I can't remember the name of the, the recent one. It's so fresh. But, 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 but so what we have seen in the United States is that in every moment in which there has been a threat to this, this premise that the white majority will determine the fate of the nation, um, we have seen a counter push, often violent, that has sought to ensure the white majority. And, and I, I don't think there's any other way to understand the rise of, of, of Trump politics and the way in which that, that language is is pushed and, and the current efforts to, to 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 suppress the vote and, and really, you know, I think what we're talking about now is the ending of, of US democracy. Um, because because what is being put on the table, and this was made very clear with the election of Barack Obama and all of the all of the fears in, in certain quarters of the United States about the demographic shift, right? That all these you know, around around the election of Barack Obama, there are all this all these stories about well, soon the United States is going to be a majority minority country, and and in in white supremacist circles, right, the Great Replacement theory, and this this idea that that white people and by extension America is going to disappear. This has always been a powerful thread in U.S. politics: the idea that undeserving non-Americans, and it used to be like Southern Europeans, Eastern Europeans. Chinese, Asians, Latin Americans, right? Um, African Americans, like all kinds of different categories that aren't white, Anglo-Saxon, Protestant Catholics. Um, this, this language that, that America is being taken away and, and rooted in this idea is the idea that democracy is only legitimate if proper legitimate voters are voting. And of course we, and of course we white people, we're legitimate, right? Well, yes, but so, but so, what is at stake, and what is being asked of the United States now? Because black people and other non-white people really do have political power in a way that, 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 that rep represented an elected office that, that that have not had at any point in U.S. history. Um, what is at stake? What is being put on the table is: Are we going to actually accept multiracial democracy in this country? Or are we going to end democracy itself? Or are we going to make it, are we going to return to a, a, a system in which the vote is very circumscribed? Because the other thing to know about the US democracy is that we haven't had a multiracial democracy for very long, right? It's only been 50 years. And, and even that multiracial democracy has been severely limited and has been under attack almost from the moment that it was instantiated. I mean, it's still to this day, I mean, that is fascinating that you bring that up, right? That you put that side by side with one another. January 6th, along with the reaction to the initial, and 
you know, the way that the Democratic Party was able to go to the South, right, able to go to Georgia, Joe Biden, not just in case of 2005 stimulus checks, but really on this idea that you know what Donald Trump is, you know what the Republicans are, you know what they're doing to you. I'm Barack Obama's best friend, you know, I'm a cool guy, did the, you know, we did dabs together. And so Donald Trump has basically instituted a, allegedly, uh, a genocide on African-Americans in terms of, you know, one out of every 500 more than one out of every 500 black people are simply gone because of coronavirus. And so you go to places like the South and you say, we need your votes in order to take the Senate. And so it is incredible. I mean, it's, it's almost like a scene right out of right after Reconstruction, right? After January 6th, they go to the South. The Republicans are trying to suppress the vote. They can't quite do it. Republican Donald Trump basically suppresses his own vote through his own mouth. Um, you know, saying that the election is legitimate. And also, Donald Trump wasn't on the ballot in January, because a lot of his voters don't come out that way. Mm-hmm. But it's just fascinating that you draw that parallel, because man, that makes absolute sense. The January 6th is that reaction. It is that explosion. I mean, conspiracy theories, you know, and all those political machinations, really it is that reaction to the thought, the thought that they could actually lose. Yes, even online you can hear this disbelief at the idea that, you know, we, we almost got 10 million more votes than last time. And they did, right? I think that's mainly due to stimulus checks, right? But, you know, Donald Trump's name on them. But the, the Republicans? Yeah. But, I mean, but, but mostly, what I'm, mostly what the point I'm trying to get to is, quickly, um, is that is an excellent, and I did not even think of that. <laughs> this is the reason why I wanted to talk to you. Corollary between those two. Because the, the situation that I often talk about my, on my on my channel is the voting rights for the people act and the packing of the Supreme Court, the expansion of the Supreme Court, right? There are 13 districts, there should be 13 justices. It's in the fact that justices have been stolen from from Barack Obama, from can be stolen from Joe Biden because of Republican obstruction. And so you have this sort of anti-democratic push from the anti-democratic body. Yeah, I mean, I, I remember in 2012, after Barack Obama was re-elected, um, there were all of these think pieces that came out. They were like, well, the Republican Party is going to have to change because the policies that the Republican Party supports are deeply unpopular. And because the, the sort of the demographic groups that support the Republican Party are, are you know, like, the Republican Party is increasingly becoming a party that, that, that has white support, but, but not a sort of broad coalition of interracial support. And it's a party that gets old, you know, the votes of older Americans, and those Americans are, are you know, sort of, you know, passing away, and younger voters are voting naturally. Yeah, yeah. Um, but the Republican Party, and, and you know, the prescription was, well, the Republican Party needs to, to sort of change, it needs to adapt to actually gain a slice of the electorate. And this is the way that democracies are supposed to work. Political parties are supposed to be responsive to changes in the will of the majority. And if your party's platform is out of step with the will of the majority, you are you should respond to that to that incentive by changing in order to in your self-interest retain political power or win political power back. The Republican Party was like, well we're just gonna be a minority party. Um, sort of doubled down and and sort of and and um, accelerated obstructionism, accelerated voter suppression, accelerated anti-democratic 
behavior. And it's become very clear that, that the party does not have a serious interest in governing in a democratic two-party two -party model. Um, but, but by, by the way, again, this is the way that the Democratic Party responded to the Civil War. Right? The Democratic Party, then the party of white supremacy, um, responded by turning. Are you still today? Well, we can right turn turn the, the turn the South into a one-party state, into a one-party society. Right? The Democratic Party um, seized power. You know, um, after after the Civil War, after, after, with with, with re real effort, because there was a real. You know, because the Republican Party had, had real support and was, was sort of committed, at least you know, nominally to, to Reconstruction, was committed to voter rights. Um, you know, the Democratic Party used, used fraud, they used violence, they seized the state house, um, and then passed a series of laws that, that basically made it impossible for any other political party to, to live in in the South, regardless of political preferences. So we have a precedence for this. I mean, this is what the Republican Party today is is trying to do. They're trying to turn the United States into a one-party state. And they are acting like that. And you know, just like the Supreme Court supported Jim Crow segregation in, at the turn of the 20th century, there's now a Supreme Court in, in place that wouldn't be, you know, it, it is amenable to the, to the Republican agenda at the very least. Um, so I, I don't think that this isn't this isn't something new. Um, and I think it's important to sort of. Um, Keep in mind that what we are what we are seeing attempted right before our eyes is something that happened about a hundred years ago in this very country, and it's, I think it's very hard for Americans to come to grips with that because we are taught to think of the United States as as, as being um, an exceptional democracy, a, a, a nation that is actually committed to a series of, of practices that, that um, in practice haven't really borne out, um, but. You know that we 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 are we are sort of taught as kids to believe in a, a you know the story of American exceptionalism. It's very hard for Americans to wrap their heads around the idea that democracy could end in the United States in the way that they imagine democracy. That that that, that um, even I mean even if, I think it's hard for a lot of people to wrap their head around the, the you know the, the very notion that the United States is is, is a society founded in as, as a white. Man society that is structured by white supremacy, for example, and, and it makes it, I think, very hard for people to really see what's what's happening before our eyes. Nice talking to you. This is a professor, Dr. Adam Neely, associate professor in the African American Studies Department here. Um, really, really smart guy. Definitely smarter than I am, which is the reason why I want to talk to you. Nice talking to you.